Is there evidence that the destruction of the Donetsk Academic Regional Drama Theater in Mariupol was actually a false flag incident staged by Ukrainians? Are the staff at pro-Ukraine PR firms getting jobs as reporters and fixers for the Western press? What role did Canada play in the eight-year-old overthrow of Yanukovych? What can Canadian listeners do this weekend to stem the tide of militarism in the upcoming budget and push for peace in Ukraine? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we will explore the realities of fake news and distorted coverage of the war in Ukraine coming not out of Russia, but from Ukraine and the NATO side. We'll start with a review by independent journalist Max Blumenthal of the Grey Zone. We will next hear from Eve Engler about some of the lies and underhandedness on the part of the Canadian government. And in our final few minutes, we will be joined by Winnipeg peace activist Glenn Michaelchuk about the alterations, if any, to his group's campaign for veering away from militarism in Ukraine after four weeks of a Russian-led incursion into the country. On this week's program, Ukraine, countering the spin on Russian aggression. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 1st, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Julian Assange was initially lauded and supported by the mainstream media. In 2008, The Economist, which is partly owned by the Rothschild family, granted Assange the New Media Award. Was this a genuine endorsement of Assange's commitment to freedom of the press, or was it a public relations ploy? Assange was framed by those who supported him, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Economist, Von Smith, George Soros, The Rothschilds, The Council on Foreign Relations et al. That comes from the article, Wikigate, Julian Assange was framed by the people who supported him, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted March 31st. An impressive barrage of distorted information, hypocritical rhetoric on human rights and anathema to unified networks against the execrable demon of pacifism is lavished to legitimize sending weapons to the war theater. Doing this is a dangerous step towards generalizing and worsening a crisis that threatens to drag the continent and the whole world into the abyss. The episode at Pisa Airport shows that the attempt to impose pro-war sentiments on the Italian people 
is meeting resistance, despite the concerted effort almost all parties represented in Parliament have been making. In recent weeks, the media has conducted a hostile campaign against the main Italian trade union, the Italian General Confederation of Labor, or CGIL, and against the National Association of Partisans of Italy, or ANPI. The ANPI is guilty, along with many other popular organizations, of refusing to conform to the single voice of war propaganda. That comes from the article, Italian Airport Workers Refuse to Load Arms for Ukraine, by Alessio Arena, posted March 30th, originally published at International Action Center. The statute simply says that to issue an EUA, the known and potential risks are outweighed by the known and potential benefits. Not a high bar. That pesky term, potential, is a loophole you could drive a truck through. Looked at it another way, the vaccine is only expected to kill less people than it saves. Is that the standard you want? for injecting the entire country or world with an entirely novel bit of technology which includes mRNA and two different lipids, three separate molecules, never before injected into humans? That comes from the article, What are FDA's criteria for issuing a COVID vaccine EUA? What happens when Pfizer and Moderna vaccines fall short? Next up, babies and toddlers. By Dr. Merrill Nass, posted March 30th, originally published in Merrill's COVID newsletter. Russia's conduct in the brutal war tells a different story than the widely accepted view that Vladimir Putin is intent on demolishing Ukraine and inflicting maximum civilian damage, and it reveals the Russian leader's strategic balancing act. If Russia were more intentionally destructive, the clamoring for U.S. and NATO intervention would be louder. And if Russia were all in, Putin might find himself with no way out. Instead, his goal is to take enough territory on the ground to have something to negotiate with, while putting the government of Ukraine in a position where they have to negotiate. Understanding the thinking behind Russia's limited attacks could help map a path towards peace, experts say. That comes from the article, Putin's bombers could devastate Ukraine, but he's holding back. Here's why. By William M. Arkin, posted March 30th, originally published in Newsweek. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. We're going to touch base on the topic of disinformation, but not from the Russian side, from the U.S.-NATO side. For this, I got hold of Max Blumenthal. He's an award-winning journalist, author of several books, and editor-in-chief of thegrayzone.com, which he describes as shining a spotlight on America's state of perpetual wars and its dangerous domestic repercussions. I started our conversation by asking Max to provide some examples of fake news manufactured in opposition to the Russians. It's really obvious that there are so many fake stories that you can't even count them. 
And I don't, and you know, it's hard to understand why they're so necessary when there is real civilian suffering in a city like Mariupol, which Russia is taking street by street back from the neo-Nazi Azov battalion, which has been incorporated into the Ukrainian military. There are civilians being killed in the fire or suffering and enormously, but what the Ukrainian side has done, and they've been, I mean, if you look at Syria or Venezuela and how much the U.S. intelligence cutouts have invested there in training and cultivating their not just their their armed proxies, but their information warriors. So much more has gone into Ukraine, and Ukraine, you know, has been controlled by this pro-U.S. pro-NATO regime since 2014. So it's just open season for funding, uh, you know, PR operatives and high, you know, tech startups to do the kind of information warfare that is the dream of the U.S. Like this, the pro- the propaganda war that we've seen waged by the Ukrainian government is this it is a U.S. propaganda war. It is a British propaganda war. And in Kiev and across the country, there are just highly educated uh, young tech savvy people ready to wage that war, and they have invented so many false stories. For for instance, the ghost of Kiev or Kiev, as we're supposed to call it, a, a, a fighter pilot who's taken down forty Russian jets. Like Representative Adam Kinzinger, this wannabe John McCain, tweeted about the ghost of Kiev, and it turns out it's a completely fake story. No such fighter pilot exists. The Ukrainian Air Force doesn't even exist. Then you've got the Snake Island story of uh, 13 soldiers, Ukrainian border guards who stood up to a Russian battleship and said, you know, to, to, to screw off. I mean, they used you know harsher language than that. And then they all died fighting. It turned out there were way more than 13 border guards. All of them were captured. None of them defied the Russian warship at all. And they were you know, then uh, were, you know, safe and sound as POWs. There was no brave standoff. Uh, but this incident, you know, is has, was, was, was reported in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Military Times as something real. Then you've got the something I've been looking at using kind of open source intelligence, otherwise known as um, reporting. And it's the bombing of the Mariupol Theater which is said to be the deadliest incident of the war. CNN and BBC are reporting that 300 were killed in this theater that women and children sheltered in and that the theater was marked with signs reading children to to, uh, ward off Russian bombers, but they bombed it anyway. And it appears pretty clear that no one was inside the theater when it was bombed. There are no images of rescuers, of dead, of survivors uh, that can be found and that the only source of this claim is an assistant to the exiled mayor of Mariupol who has run away days ago and who was working hand in glove with the neo-Nazi Azov battalion who is pro-Azov. This is the only source for the BBC and CNN. It's just pure hearsay. They have not been able to independently verify anything. And, And just looking at the you know, the photographic evidence, I found that there were cars parked all around this theater the day before the bombing and that the day of the bombing, there were no vehicles, no vehicles damaged, no vehicles present and, and no people present. Wait a so second. The, I mean, the press 
aren't they supposed to verify before they go to print? I mean, is that, I mean, they're just taking the, 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 the message from this one mayor as the basis for everything that's going on? Exactly. And so this is one of the worst performances, or maybe you could call it one of the best performances by U.S. corporate media, because essentially what we're seeing is that they are an arm of the information war being waged by U.S. intelligence through its Ukrainian proxies. And in the, 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 the assistant to the Ukrainian mayor, I was reading in um, Ukrainian media, you know, just using translation tools, he said, we had to abandon Mariupol um, in order to preserve our intelligence network. That was, that was the language he used. So this is just an, inf- an intelligence game. And what, what, what is the agenda of the Azov Battalion in Mariupol, aside from, you know, establishing a fascist bastion, which they've sort of effectively done for years? They have been calling for a no-fly zone because they're desperate. They're losing the fight there against a much larger military force, just like the armed opposition in Syria was. And so we've seen their commanders issue pleas in English on YouTube for NATO to intervene militarily. But NATO doesn't want to do it. Biden doesn't want to do it. They don't want a direct confrontation with a nuclear power. And so they're trying to generate emotionally potent incidents that will cause the Western public to demand that their leaders intervene. And that was the point of this theater story, I think. Where Azov had controlled the theater, they had controlled everything around it. And as they were retreating, it appears that a explosive charge was detonated with no one inside the theater or no one near the charge. That's what it looks like to me. I could be completely wrong if it's been 12 days since this took place and there's still no footage of dead people or rescue crews or anything. So maybe that'll turn up and I'll be proven completely wrong, but it looks like they were trying to stage something to generate the emotional impact needed to get the West on board with getting in there, just like the Syrian rebels did, the so-called rebels in Duma, April 2018, when Jaysh al-Islam, this extremist faction backed by Saudi Arabia, was losing in a Damascus suburb, was retreating, had everyone around, all the other battalions around it had been defeated by the Syrian army. They were closing in, and suddenly they allege a chemical attack, a chlorine attack, and produce video through all of these um, networks that had been set up through Turkish and U.S. intelligence, so they have like pretty powerful communication network still, even though their military capacity had collapsed. And they produce a, a just video and a, and a um, photograph of dead civilians in a basement, no evidence of any chlorine attack. And then they gather a bunch of civilians together, including children, and start hosing them off through their um, auxiliary so-called rescue crews like the White Helmets and just make and then that, and then corporate media in the West broadcasts all of it, chemical allegations of a chemical attack, and they show children being hosed off, and then the leaders have to respond, and so they do pinprick missile strikes on Damascus. That's yes, the model that the Ukrainian uh, forces are operating under. Well, you know, they used to talk about the white helmets was also pr- pr- providing a lot of this information, and today they actually have Azov Battalion showing the, 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 some of the theater footage of uh, the, the attacks in Mariupol. Is it the same tactic, or there might be a little bit of a difference this time? Well, what's different is that uh, they didn't, you know, what they could have done 
which is what it, what appears to have been done in Duma was that these civilians had actually been killed. They may have been killed in a conventional by a conventional weapon by the Syrian army, or they could have been executed by these vicious forces. And I can tell you, like I've been in the ruins in Ghouta, which is just west of Duma, and talked to civilians there about the conditions they lived under. They lived under just uh, a miniature Saudi Arabia, but more tyrannical for for several years. They said that women were trafficked, held as people were used as slave labor. All the aid that came in was pillaged, and that hum, and the people were used as human shields towards the end, um, and held in a stable. And that the Syrian government was told that they will kill everyone in the stable if they enter the area. So that was, and that's what's sort of been going on in Mariupol these past days, except that the Azov battalion apparently didn't kill anyone or take any dead bodies that had been killed by the Russian army and attempt to claim that they were killed inside the theater. And that's what makes this incident so strange. I mean, they haven't really backed up any of their claims with the kind of photographic and video evidence that was so potent in Syria. Uh, And I'm waiting for that to come, but it just hasn't come. So it really looks like the Azov people let everyone just go the day before. We do hear a lot of talk about people leaving the day before around the theater. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned just, just a few days ago, uh, there's a press, a press article uh, about uh, an incident involving how the, some press agencies have biased their reporting by setting up an individual as a reporter and fixer for press agency BBC. And this reporter was working as formerly as the head of the PR firm uh, linked to boosterism for Ukraine as late of October 2021. Um, so she brings the stories of the theater in, in Mariupol uh, completely consistent with uh, what the architects wanted people to see. That's what uh, Orisia Kimiak is, is her name. Yeah. Uh, could, could you describe a, a little bit of, of, of what you could see uh, as some uh, as some of the uh, the holes running through their uh, news narratives? Well, the the most obvious hole is that they did not have any evidence, photographic or video evidence of even a rescue taking place or being attempted. Uh, the descriptions, they have two eyewitnesses and these reporters are in Lviv or Lvov, which is in the West of Ukraine, very far from Mariupol. And so they're interviewing two people who said they were eyewitnesses delivering a very cinematic account who themselves were not able to see who was responsible for the blast. They just said they felt a blast um, and that they had gone there to get lunch. I think what Azov appeared to be doing was just gathering people there with a field kitchen that they said they had. But beyond that, I mean, you have the co-author of these BBC articles. You look at who they are. They're a public relations operative from um, Lvov and who also worked in in Kiev on a um, app produced by a startup that the Washington Post called one of the top Ukrainian war information messaging apps. And it's called Reface. It gives users the ability to put their face on celebrities' bodies in like famous film scenes and 
what they do is they've gathered millions of people into this network and now they're pumping out messages urging them to stand with Ukraine, to send aid, to support the war effort, to support the Ukrainian military, to everyone who participates in this app. And it seems like it was all done by design. It's- yeah, I mean, I, I like all my time uh, in journalism, I and mean, whenever you had any potential conflict, you, you have to state it outright. You have to be transparent. Yeah. And yeah. here it's presented as if uh, it's totally fair, and, and it's I, I just don't get it. Um, what just shows what the BBC is, it's just another information weapon and they just cast aside any pretense of objectivity. Like on their site, one of the first things you see is that they're the most trusted network and that you can trust them more than other outlets and that they're against disinformation. And then you have them, you know, their, their correspondent in Ukraine sharing a byline with someone who is a, like a nationalist Ukrainian PR operative. I went on her Twitter account. And she's openly saying that she hates all Russians. Like she said, I cannot, uh, like I can no longer suspend my um, impulse to hate all Russians because of what they're doing. So it's just like, it's right out there in the open. And then her Twitter header is uh, a meme referring to the phony incident of Snake Island, which she treats as real. This is the BBC. I mean, it's, it's everything they say about RT it's, it just shows what a projection all of the denunciations of RT are. Mm. Yeah. Now, I, I know that uh, the press keeps insisting that uh, the idea that neo-Nazis are in Ukraine, that's Russian disinformation. I, I can't right. even hear any news about the Nazi Azov faction on, 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 on a show like Democracy Now!, which is held up as a high beacon of independent news reporting. And I, I don't think you can get a sense of, of what the war is unless you have... Uh, you know, acknowledgement of their existence, uh, but uh, it, it is only mentioned as Russian disinformation. And they say that there's a Jewish president, so how could the Nazis be taking over? You know, that sort of thing. If, if, give us a, a few short descriptions of, of how you, you know, I guess bulk up your insistence of, of, of the Nazis in, in Ukraine and, and indeed uh, how they are a major presence versus the, uh, you know, Russian fairy tale. Well, right now you can just look at who's doing the fighting in the key theater of battle. It is Mariupol and it is the Azov Battalion. That's their base. They captured it in 2014 and they maintained it on behalf of the Ukrainian state. The Azov Battalion emerged from the so-called black shirts of the Maidan uh, revolution of dignity, which I would consider a U.S.-backed coup. They were the street muscle. They themselves emerged out of the Patriot of Ukraine, which was a gang of fascist hooligans who assaulted migrants and uh, Roma people, homosexuals, you know, the, the usual suspects. They were just literal, they were like a literal neo-Nazi street gang that turned into one of the most ferocious and important battalions of the Ukrainian National Guard. The Azov Battalion, which wears neo-Nazi insignia on its uniforms, has a civilian wing called the National Corps, which operates openly intimidating citizens and political opponents in Kiev and cities across Ukraine under the auspices of the Ukrainian Interior Ministry. They are sponsored officially by the Ukrainian Interior Ministry to keep order 
and they're armed by the state. Their uniforms are provided by the state, and they go around intimidating city councils and mayors that will not do their bidding. I mean, they've stolen elections by just going to the polls and telling people, we won. They have uh, another gang, C-14. His name was inspired by the famous 14 words of the dead American neo-Nazi leader, David Lane, which has been funded and sponsored by the Ukrainian Ministry of Culture. One of their leaders gave a talk at the America House in Kiev, which is an NGO sponsored by the U.S. government. And the uh, Kiev City Council sponsored this group, C-14. It's a literal neo-Nazi terrorist organization to attack Roma people who are sleeping near a train station. It was considered part of a public cleanup campaign. They filmed themselves pepper spraying women and elderly Roma people and beating them with clubs. This is, uh, these are, these are leaders that have participated in negotiations with Zelensky and held veto power over the Minsk agreement because they have their forces in the East. And when Zelensky attempted to get them to pull back, they just told him to go to hell and he left. And Zelensky himself while Jewish has not only downplayed his Jewish background, he said that it is cool and normal for a part of the Ukrainian population to revere Stepan Bandera, who is the hero of all Ukrainian nationalists and was the leader of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists during World War II that collaborated with Nazi Germany and participated in the Holocaust of Bullets, uh, in which hundreds of thousands of Jews, ethnic Poles, and other minorities were exterminated across Ukraine. That is just a small slice of the kind of collaboration between the Ukrainian state and literal neo-Nazis that we've witnessed since the birth of the Maidan regime in 2014. And what sets Ukraine apart from a country like the United States or Russia, which both have neo-Nazis and white supremacists, is that the their neo-Nazis and white supremacists are part of the military and part of the state, and they are officially recognized as such and and, and celebrated. You know, your your coverage uh, has been quite re- refreshingly at odds uh, with what we see in media. Um, have you been subjected to attacks of any origin? I mean, you know, putting out Russian disinformation, or they just ignore you altogether? Well, you can look at my Wikipedia page. It says that I'm like a regular frequent contributor to RT and Sputnik, and that is one of the first things you'll read. And while I value RT and Sputnik as you know news sources that provide a different point of view for Americans, and like we need to follow all sorts of media, I've been on RT, I think, twice in the past two or three months, and I have been on Sputnik maybe once. Um, I've been on other networks much more but it doesn't list me that way and pretty much that you just follow just look down through my wikipedia page and it basically makes me look like a psychotic holocaust denying uh, self-hating jew who uh, is an assadist genocide denier and it's just pure propaganda um, and none of the facts are engaged and in fact the gray zone the site that i run while we've never had to really issue a factual correction, we've never had anyone debunk any of our articles. We are listed as a deprecated source on the gray zone. Uh, sorry, on, on Wikipedia, 
So the the, depre- the 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 denigration starts there, and then you have mainstream journalists just drawing on that to create and cobble together a phony narrative about us in order to discredit our work. What they want to do is frighten people away from our factual journalism because it's doing so much damage to their disinformation narrative. And I'm a, I'm waiting for some mainstream. I, we were at, I was attacked in the Times of London last week, which is like the MI5's favorite paper in the UK, uh, because an academic in the UK retweeted one of my articles. They want to get him fired. So the, I was sort of peripherally attacked. But I got uh, a Newsweek reporter reached out to me, and I was just like, it was a strange request. So I assume there'll be some more attacks incoming. Uh, no one in mainstream media can be treated as, you know, a good faith operator or someone who will honestly quote you and present your side. Because if you just look at the whole spectrum of U.S. media right now, there is only one side, and that is the Ukrainian nationalist narrative and the State Department side. I, I really com- congratulate you on your work, you and and your colleagues out there at the, the Gray Zone. Nuts. Uh, it sounds like you're... Uh, you're doing the kind of work that you should be doing if you're getting attacked to the extent you are. So I, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and uh, maybe we can have you back uh, at a later date. Thanks a lot, Michael. Absolutely. would love to come back. We've been speaking with Max Blumenthal, award-winning journalist and the editor-in-chief of The Gray Zone. Find it at thegrayzone.com. listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Looking at the role of Canada in its particular framing of the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're joined by once again by Eve Engler. He is a Montreal-based author and activist. He has published 12 books including his recent books House of Mirrors, Justin Trudeau's foreign policy, and his latest Stand on Guard for Whom, a people's history of the Canadian military. Thanks for joining us again, Eve. Thanks a lot for having me. Now, as you watch the broadcasts of the CBC and, and read the Globe and Mail and read other organs of major media control in Canada, what stands out most about distorted coverage of the current situation in Ukraine? Well, I think that they they um, almost entirely omit uh, how policies that Canada, obviously along with the U.S. and uh, uh, some other NATO countries, um, pursued how they have they helped precipitate Russia's uh, uh, invasion, which is clearly a violation of international law and is of course uh, quite uh, quite brutal. Um, but there are a bunch of uh, policy decisions that were made by Canadian officials that um, have uh, increased the, the, the likelihood, uh, have ramped up tensions, um, and, uh, and that's uh, almost entirely omitted from the dominant media. And, I've, uh, and, and you saw that even before the full-fledged uh, uh, invasion, even in, uh, in January and earlier in uh, in February, uh, uh, the media outlets uh, refused to cover some of the backgrounder. And I did a story about uh, Murray Brewster, who's leading a, um, the military uh, a senior reporter for the CBC. 
And I, I did a story basically that showed that because uh, sometimes you don't know if these journalists are ignorant, if they're lazy, or if they're just uh, a psychophants of power. And I did a story basically showed that Murray Brewster had previously himself reported on uh, important information uh, that would that would help Canadians make sense of of the tensions uh, over the Ukraine. Um, and and uh, but he didn't report any of that amidst the tensions taking place at that moment. So for instance, Murray Brewster reported in 2015 that the um, Canadian embassy in Kyiv was used for more than a week by opposition activists uh, that helped overthrow the uh, Yanukovych government uh, and that the spokesperson of the Canadian embassy was a was a, uh, was a uh, leading uh, uh, anti-government activist. Uh, and he quoted um, some uh, European ally officials uh, anonymously saying that Canada had participated in regime change. Murray Brewster had also reported on the fact that in 2008, that Canada was pushing uh, uh, NATO expansion and that it to, inc to include Ukraine and that Russia was very hostile to that. Uh, and he'd also reported on the fact that there were far right uh, activists uh, or, or um, uh, military uh, that Canada was uh, had been uh, had been training in, in Ukraine. So that's some of the context that that is, is important in understanding not it doesn't legitimate uh, Russia's uh, violation of international law, but it provides some context understanding that Canada, the US and others have have really been uh, uh, ratcheting up tension in terms of NATO uh, in Eastern Europe. I've been doing that for decades, also putting all kinds of uh, aggressive uh, uh, US weapon systems throughout Eastern Europe. But then also they, in 2014, they ousted the, helped oust the government that led to a war that's been going on for eight years in Eastern Ukraine, um, which is, you know, which Russia has, has a, you know, they're primarily Russian speakers that have been the primary victims of that. And, uh, and Russia has been, uh, been, you know, impacted greatly by that, uh, by that conflict. So all that's context, that's absolutely essential. Um, but we don't get it in the media. And instead, we get a one-sided uh, uh, view that says we just need to put in more weapons. We need to uh, ratchet up even more sanctions. We need to. Uh, some people want a you know full-fledged uh, NATO conflict, uh, open conflict with Russia, the so-called no-fly zone. Uh, that's the mantra we get in the in the dominant media. Could you talk about how Canada supported the erosion of democracy in Ukraine? I mean, uh, how how are they involved in the lead up? and the execution of the coup d'etat of February 2014. Yeah, so that's one of the points that, that the sort of uh, pro-NATO people make is that um, for those, for this, the few times when someone points out that Canada and the US helped oust the government in 2014, that, that's rare that that gets mentioned. But when it does get mentioned, the, the pushback from the pro-NATO people is to say, well, we just supported this this popular uprising, and it was you know sort of a popular uprising happened, and there was uh, government repression, and therefore we you know we supported them. But in fact, if you if you go back uh, and you just don't even have to go into like any sort of hidden area, but just if you look at reports that were in the corporate media uh, going back to 2010 when uh, Yanukovych uh, took office, immediately Stephen Harper's government begins attacking. Uh, Yanukovych. 
and the Harper goes to Ukraine in the October of 2010, and he organizes a whole series of measures during the trip, basically encouraging, designed to encourage opposition to the government. And then in subsequent months and, and years, there's just this, this constant attack against, uh, against the a president that the Organization of Security uh, Cooperation in Europe uh, monitors, which included Canadians, uh, said it was a the election was a was a uh, uh, you know clean and fair and a, and a great display of democracy, and yet just these constant attacks. Um, so so Canada helped encourage the opposition, also funding funding uh, civil society organizations, uh, um, Western Western based civil society organizations. This hasn't been. Um, as well uh, uh, research as it, as it deserves to be. There's a bit of research going on this issue going back uh, to 2004 during the so-called Orange Revolution, uh, which was another um, uh, North American-sponsored um, uh, regime change uh, effort in the Ukraine. And in that case, the Global Mail actually reported on uh, Mark McKinnon, who's the, you know, the current, the still Global Mail European correspondent, who's re reported a lot about Ukraine in recent uh, weeks. Um, he has a story, and he actually does a book about it in 2007, um, but he, he points out how Pora, the main opposition group in the Orange Revolution, was uh, got $30,000 from the Canadian, U.S., Canadian, from the Canadian Embassy, which was their first uh, uh, finan financial contribution, uh, and he points out, shows how the Canadian Embassy uh, put around, I think, about a half million dollars into different groups uh, around the uh, Orange Revolution. So, but basically, since... Ukrainian independence, in fact, before that even, <laughs> but since Ukrainian independence in 1991, um, the Canadian government has been putting in resources uh, openly in terms of uh, supporting civil society. And, and that is civil society, um, that is how the Canadian government frame it is Western oriented, which is people generally in the West or, or, or central uh, Ukraine that are both geographically and ideologically and economically more oriented to Central uh, or Western Europe uh, versus the other half of the country, which is more uh, oriented towards Russia, again, economically, geographically, linguistically, uh, culturally, if you like. Um, and, and the Canadian government has been putting in resources uh, into backing uh, these forces that, that basically um, don't believe that the eastern half, eastern and southern half of the Ukraine, um, are real Ukrainians, and and you see that in in with the very quite explicitly with Ukrainian Canadian Congress, which is this uh, this uh, you know uh, uh, Ukrainian community uh, umbrella organization. That, that really, I mean, from right away in 2010, they were already, when Yanukovych uh, was elected, they were already making it quite clear that they didn't consider him a you know, legitimate Ukrainian uh, and, and uh, he was just a you know, Rus Russian stooge. And as one uh, Royal Military College uh, professor, uh, Canadian Royal Military College professor said, he, you know, he, in, in 2010, he, he would go down in the dustbin of history. Um, so they, they in the in the Kingston Whig Standard, I think, was also uh, republished in the in the Winnipeg Free Press. Um, his op-ed, and so so the the, the Canadian government um, 
you know, was, was working to undermine uh, the Yanukovych government uh, through 2014, was up until the late 2013 uh, so-called Maidan protests. But in fact, if you look, go back further, they've been uh, strengthening uh, nationalistic, um, uh, European, NATO-focused political forces in the Ukraine that are uh, incredibly hostile uh, uh, to Russia. So this is a long-standing uh, Canadian policy um, that's you know sort of ebbed and flowed, and how uh, how aggressive it uh, it has been. For sure. Um, now, no major party in the House of Commons challenges the role of NATO. Uh, the major media in Canada broadly broadcasts the view that the world has changed as a result of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. No one even questions Canada's involvement in NATO, or for that matter, the reasons to continue supporting NATO at all. Give us a few reminders of the argument that NATO itself assisted rather than countered the violence uh, of the last month. Well, I, I would say it's worse than no uh, no M MP, you know, party is, is questioning uh, uh, NATO. They're all supporting, uh, as the NDP did, Ukraine's incorporation into NATO. They're, and they've been doing that. Uh, it's been a few months now since the NDP uh, foreign affairs critic, uh, Heather McPherson, made that made the comment. Um, but they've been doing it in the context of heightened tension <laughs> over the question of Ukraine, which is you know becoming a formal member, right, and to some extent, Ukraine sort of a de facto member of of of, uh, of, uh, of NATO, and you know that's been how that's what Canadian uh, military training over the past seven years has been about in large part is is bringing the the Ukrainian military um, you know making it more interoperable with with NATO forces as part of the process of bringing the Ukraine uh, into into uh, NATO so so they're not just questioning I mean I think they, they should be questioning the NDP and others should be questioning you know why is Canada even in NATO right the whole the whole rationale for NATO was that it was a defensive arrangement against the aggressive Soviet Union. Well, that disappeared 30 years ago, yet NATO uh, continues and in fact expands. Um, so, so that, you know, should be, should be questioned. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, basically what NATO has been doing, what the, to some extent it's not fair to say NATO because it's really the US, Canada and Britain, the three main members of NATO for the past seven years have been, um, building up a, a uh, Ukrainian uh, security force to uh, one fight the war uh, against uh, the population in eastern Donbass region of the Ukraine, and uh, also to prepare a, a Ukrainian force to fight uh, Russia to be a, a, a counter to to Russian uh, uh, power. Uh, um, in the region. Uh, also, there's been, you know, efforts at uh, naval, you know, NATO naval uh, base and, you know, for British uh, vessels and, and stuff like that. And there were CIA uh, trainers uh, right until about, you know, weeks before uh, the full-fledged uh, Russian invasion, CIA trainers alongside the Canadian and other British uh, uh, trainers. So, so and, and NATO has then simultaneously, the Americans have pumped in, you know, billions of dollars in weapons before 
uh, the full-fledged Russian invasion, and then continued, uh, even amped up um, uh, since since the uh, since the war a little over over a month ago. Um, so so NATO has has uh, uh, you know fueled uh, the conflict. Um, one of the demands that the Russian government was putting forward uh, before uh, invading was the question of neutrality uh, for um, Ukraine. Um, now it appears the Ukrainian government has, that's a one concession it, it appears it's going to uh, um, make um, uh, about uh, some, some form of neutrality for uh, Ukraine, which is, which is, you know, it exists, Austria, Finland, there's others experiences with this. This is not, you can, you can still even be a fairly, you know, European, you can even part of European Union and certainly have a European Western or Central European oriented economy and, and uh, commit to not, not joining uh, uh, NATO. Um, so, but, but, but the NATO countries, particularly the U.S., France and Germany have, have been uh, different with this, but the U.S. and Canada, the main ones, have been sort of on one hand saying you can join NATO, Ukraine, but then, uh, and, and sort of working to incorporate Ukraine into NATO, but then not fully, not fully uh, uh, bringing Ukraine into, into NATO. So, which I think fits from the standpoint of what what Ukraine is from the standpoint of Washington and Ottawa primarily it's a it's a um, tool to uh, to weaken Russia to fight Russia to 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 um, to just sort of be uh, hostile to Russia and obviously Ukraine was you know traditionally it was it was part of the Soviet Union it's big chunks of it were part of the Russian Empire going back uh, you know two centuries um, and so and so. Uh, there's, there's, um, there's, you know, from a Russian perspective, there's, there's uh, a lot of, you know, cultural and economic and other kind of uh, attachment. Um, and, but, uh, but um, from the standpoint of, of, um, you know, weakening uh, Russia uh, geopolitically, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very useful to Washington, Ottawa, to have a, um, a Ukraine that's um, kind of, or, uh, you know, anti-Russian oriented. Uh, Ukraine is um, is very appealing, and and it and you know now it's uh, that dynamic is turning into this uh, you know horrible tragedy for um, for you know, millions, tens of millions of uh, of uh, of Ukrainians. Indeed. Now you've tackled a number of different factors of, of Canadian foreign policy, from Africa to Latin America to Israel to Haiti. Is there anything unique about the Ukrainian situation that uh, alarms you and, and that should particularly alarm peace-loving Canadians? Well, I think one element to understanding uh, Canada's role in Ukraine that's uh, you know, interesting um, is that I think that there's, there's, there's this... Canada has been really aggressive on the Ukraine question more than, you know, Germany or France, some other NATO countries, partly because we're far removed. So it's, it's less costly, right? We're not, we're not getting, it's easy for the Canadian government to cut off uh, oil uh, sales from Russia, but because there aren't any oil sales from Russia, right? So obviously more, much more difficult for Germany and, and some other uh, uh, France, which have been the, the, the less uh, belligerent uh, NATO powers on this question. So the Canadian government, it, you know, it's a good way to, it's good for the arms firms, it's good for Canada's relationship to the American empire. So they, to be really aggressive in Ukraine. On the other hand, 
they have a really good public relations front uh, on this. So, so, so in, to, certain, to a large extent, Canadian policy is sort of indifferent to Ukrainian suffering. Uh, and sort of, yeah, hey, we'll use, this is great, we'll use this country to, you know, fight our war against, uh, against Russia. But they also have a PR front, which is basically, we're doing this because this diaspora uh, organization or community, Ukrainian Canadian Congress, wants it. Uh, now, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress is this a group that the Canadian government has been work supporting for you know, 80 years as a way to undermine left-wing Ukrainians. And it's completely oriented towards, uh, you know, Western Ukrainians with, geographically within Ukraine who are who are hostile to Russia. So, so from the from the Canadian government's perspective, this is sort of like a a, a perfect um, uh, foreign policy uh, situation where we can be very aggressive. We can get all kinds of kudos with Washington. It's good for the arms industry. It's good for this NATO organization that we've been, you know, promoting for seventy five. Or so almost 75 years now we've been a founding member and a big proponent of but then simultaneously we can frame it as we're just trying to you know support the the ukrainian canadian uh uh um, community so that's i think a, a kind of novel somewhat novel element of of canadian foreign policy you see some similar dynamics like in haiti when they overthrew the elected government in 2004 the canadian government tried to portray canada's involvement in haiti as because the you know haitian diaspora wanted it um now there were you know the a sliver segment of the Haitian diaspora in Canada that did want that, uh, but the the bulk of the diaspora didn't want that. Uh, and that they were just sort of you know excluded from the discussion. Um, so that's one element of 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 uh, of um, uh, can, can I, can I, I guess unique element of Canadian foreign policy playing out in in Ukraine. Another element I think that is is you know unlike um, most of the other. Uh, Canadian foreign policy, um, you know, criticisms or, or focuses I've I've had, is that th there is some level of of, of um, power on the other side. So you know, like even like sort of like the no fly zone. So there's a discussion of you know imposing a no fly zone. Well, the reason they're not imposing a no fly zone is just that Russia actually has military power versus, you know, Libya in 2011. Uh, it didn't have military power or Iraq previously, where US and uh, Canada supported a you know, no fly zone for a decade or, or so. Um, it's because Russia actually does have some power. So, so, so the, the, the stakes of, of this conflict obviously ultimately are, are much graver for all of uh, uh, humanity. The stakes, of course, for Libyans of being pummeled by NATO fighter jets for six months and special forces on the ground and whatnot were obviously you know, very significant for Libyans. Um, and and, and it, you know, that conflict was significant also for um, destabilizing uh, the Sahel region of, of Africa. But this this conflict um, has the possibility of, of you know nuclear war, which uh, brings a whole other um, uh, a scale of of uh, of uh, um, toll for for uh, uh, for not just Ukrainians but for uh, for potentially for all of uh, all of humanity. Thank you for joining us again, Eve. It's been a pleasure having you on as always. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. We've been speaking to Eve Engler, based in Montreal. He's an activist and an author on Canadian foreign policy.
So um, Glenn Michaelchuk is with me now. He is chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg and also the president of the Association of United Ukrainians Canada. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you, Michael. It's I'm president of the Winnipeg branch of the Association of United Ukrainian Canadians. Okay, thanks for the clarification. Just to clarify, yeah. For sure. Now, Glenn, uh, the situation between Russia and Ukraine has changed since we last spoke. While it had been at that time perfectly legal for Russian troops to have battle simulations and, and whatnot on their territory, they did cross over at multiple points on February 24th and waged very violent operations on foreign territory. Does that change your group's stance on, on peace for Ukraine in any way? Uh, no, it doesn't in, in this context, okay? Um, it's true there is now a war going on in Ukraine, and I would also say over Ukraine, in the sense of the various other forces that are, are being involved, and, and I can just touch on that a little bit further on. But what happened on February 24th, before February 24th, um, uh, peace organizations across Canada, or many countries around the world, uh, our Association of United Ukrainian Canadians uh, could see the dangers that were mounting. Uh, and in particular, in the role of the Canadian government to escalate tensions and to really undermine um, diplomatic efforts that were ongoing in Europe to try and um, forestall war. Um, prior to February 24th, uh, Russia, the Russian Federation uh, said that uh, NATO expansion uh, into Ukraine was a red line that could not be crossed. NATO, however, and kept talking about, it'll be up to Ukraine to decide and we can't tell anybody not to join. The Canadian government uh, through uh, the minister, uh, foreign affairs minister, uh, Melanie Jolie said they fully supported Ukraine's right uh, to join NATO. So this context also has to be looked at in terms of what had been going on in Ukraine in the years prior to January, February of this, of this year, where Canada was actively training uh, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian army uh, for admission into NATO through Operation um, uh, Unifier. Uh, Canadian forces had taken a very aggressive uh, role in forward operations of NATO through Operation Reassurance, which stationed major, major battle groups uh, in uh, the Baltic states. So this, this, the situation beforehand peace groups and through many years have been calling for de-escalation of the tensions and especially in that period. So it, the failure of diplomacy was almost predictable because of the actions of Canada, the US, uh, Great Britain and others. And so on February 24th, uh, I don't think a lot of people were surprised that the push had come to shove and that the Russian uh, Federation uh, acted to um, protect what they saw as their interests. Mm. Now that doesn't justify it, but it explains it. Okay. And all wars, all wars have their reasons. So in the, in the period immediately following, we've been saying the same thing. There must be de-escalation de of the conflict. 
um, there must be a consideration that Ukraine become a, a neutral state and that Ukraine uh, renounce um, measures to join NATO. So. Yeah, well, ne next week, uh, Christian Freeland, the finance minister, will be presenting the budget, which is expected to promote more spending on the military, and it will require the NDP to support it as they only control a minority budget uh, government. A large portion of it would go to NATO. Now, in the days that we have left, uh, when they presented on the 7th, uh, what demand would you suggest the Canadians do right now with, with regard to you know, correcting this situation and, and promoting peace in the budget? Uh, Canadians should contact their members of parliament and especially NDP members of parliament. One of the crucial items in this budget is gonna be the purchase of F-35 fighters. So Canadians should oppose that. Uh, if they can't uh, have all aspects of this increased military spending slashed, they should. They should at least try and block the purchase of the F-35, which is an offensive military uh, aircraft. It has nothing to do in terms of defensive capabilities. It's an aircraft that is capable of carrying nuclear weapons. So Canadians just have to express their, uh, their, uh, their opposition uh, to a military budget. Uh, they, and they should contact their members of parliament. I know next week in several cities, including the, in Winnipeg here, um, we're going to be having a um, protest against this, uh, against the military budget. On the what? Uh, pardon me? When is it the, uh, the, the protest? Uh, dates and times are, are still being worked on. It would probably, it may be the day of the budget or the day following the budget, which okay. I think is the day budget day is April 7th, I think. Yeah. Uh, we'll have information on our website and Facebook page of the Peace Alliance Winnipeg. Okay, well, thanks, Glenn. It's uh, been a pleasure having you back. Thank you, Michael. That was Glenn Michael Chuck, chair of the uh, Peace Alliance Winnipeg and the uh, president of the Winnipeg chapter of the Association for United Ukrainian Canadians, joining us from Winnipeg. That's it for this week's show. Next week, we will focus on shortages of food and fuel rising from the banning of Russian <laughs> oil and gas with the famous writer on peak oil and gas, the one and only James Howard Kunzler. Join us then. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.